Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we visit Holyoke Community College, home to the only Latinx studies major at a two-year institution in the whole state of Massachusetts. We'll sit down with Professor Raul Gutierrez and current Latinx students, studies majors, Michi Serran and Alana Brunt to find out how the program started and where it looks to grow in the coming years. And we'll head to Amherst Cinema, who is smack dab in the middle of Transformed, a four-part series amplifying trans stories, representation, and filmmakers. We'll get to chat with Professors Elliot Montague of Mount Holyoke and Jen Malkowski of Smith College, along with Amherst Cinema Director Yasmin Chin Eisenhower about the power and importance of the series and works within. But first, there's one topic on all of Capitol Hill's minds this week. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester Zone Congressman Jim McGovern, a weekly segment we like to call McGoverning with McGovern. Last week, we were very concerned with the government shutting down, which would have happened over the weekend. But after narrowly avoiding that shutdown and myriad crazy House negotiation sessions, including what appears to be the intentional pulling of a fire alarm to either prolong negotiations or the madness, a 45-day plan to keep the government running was passed last weekend. And yet somehow that feels like an eternity ago from what's gone on since then. Because just a couple of days ago, history was made when the Republican Speaker of the House was de-gaveled by his own party with no assistance from the Democrats. The headline in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette reads, McGovern and Neil rip clown show spectacle on Capitol Hill. So I figured, Congressman, since you've been in the thick of this, and since this is above the pay grade of most people in this country, this could be like a civics lesson. All of this started because the now former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, negotiated with the MAGA Republicans like Matt Gates to earn that speakership. Senator McConnell, a Republican, urging House Republicans now to ditch this motion to vacate, was this rule created in your rules committee? Or where does this rule where the deal that McCarthy made with uh, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and others, where was that crafted? Well, it was crafted uh, in the Republican conference and, and then it comes to the rules committee and then the then the rules package goes to the floor. But this rule was, uh, was agreed to by Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans. It was a bad idea. I remember telling uh, my Republican friends at the time that you're, you're asking for trouble when you do this because it invites chaos. And I hate to say it, but I was right. They uh, used this rule to expel uh, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. This is why it was so difficult to get an agreement on keeping the government open because Kevin McCarthy was constantly afraid of these mostly five people, but it turns out to be eight that actually voted no. Any negotiation with the Democrats, they're threatened to throw them out. Any compromise on keeping the government open, they're threatened to throw them out. And that's what they did. You know, when, when he was negotiating with the Republicans, he said, well, okay, how about we, we, we agree that if 50 people want me to be expelled, we could bring that to the floor. They said, no, how, how about 25? Then he went to 15. Then he went to 10. Then he went to five. And then he went to one. Uh, and as you remember, it took 15 votes for him to become speaker. Mm-hmm. So he has no one to blame but himself. He invited this chaos. Now we need to move on. I don't think anybody is blaming the Democrats for what happened to Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the removal of his speakership. But it would have been possible for the Democrats as a party along party lines to have voted present, theoretically, and let the Republicans hang themselves, essentially, with only Republican votes, correct? And how did that decision happen not to go in that direction, to, to almost to be the bigger party, to say we would like government to function? Uh, this is not a vendetta that, that has anything really to do with us. How did that decision yeah. come into play? 
well, first of all, we have bailed them out time and time and time again. I mean, we bailed them out on the continuing resolution to keep the government running. You know, I mean, 90 of his members voted no to shut the government down. Every single Democrat but one voted yes. That was uh, uh, last Saturday. On Sunday, he was on talk shows blaming the Democrats for everything. So there's not a lot of goodwill um, and there's not a lot of trust. And when you say, you know, we want to make sure the government keeps functioning, that was, that, that's believing that the government was functioning. Everything was crisis to crisis to crisis. And the legislation that he was bringing to the floor really was a reflection of those most extreme MAGA Republicans. I mean, we were, we were debating appropriations bills that cut LIHEAP, the Energy Assistance Program for Low-Income People, by 74%, got cuts to WIC and Head Start. They would have thrown a million senior citizens off of Meals on Wheels. I mean, some of the most grotesque stuff you can imagine. All this crazy stuff was, you know, was being brought to the floor on a, on a regular basis. We're not getting things that could pass the Senate, never mind get signed by the president. So the government wasn't functioning. And McCarthy made no overtures to ask for anybody's help. I think he just assumed we would help him out because, you know, Nancy Pelosi helped keep John Boehner as speaker when he was under attack. We had a, a, a caucus meeting and people just had had it. You know, our job is not to elect the speaker. That's the majority party. That's the Republicans. Why are we always coming to the rescue? I mean, on, uh, on the other day, the Republicans lit themselves on fire. The notion that Democrats, you know, should come, you know, and, and put that fire out is ludicrous. My hope is that one of the lessons for whoever becomes speaker uh, is going to be that you need to work with Democrats. They have a narrowest of narrow margins in the House. They don't control the Senate. They don't control the White House. So the notion that it's their way, the highway, that's the way it's been. No, that, that's just not right. So he wasn't worth keeping. And for the sake of the institution, let's hope the Republicans have a day of reckoning and come up with somebody who will be the speaker of the whole House. Our continuing civics lesson in light of what's gone on in the House of Representatives this week with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern. The other thing that I think people didn't know about, perhaps I didn't know about, was a post 9-11 rule that has been worked into the House to create a Senate pro tempore where a secret letter is hidden and there's a list of names on this letter. Nobody knew what was going to be on this letter until this letter was revealed after Speaker McCarthy was removed. And now Patrick McHenry, which sounds like the most colonial uh, early American (laughs) name of all time, is the Senate pro tempore. Can they do anything if in 40-ish now days the government is is, uh, running out that clock of the the interim package to keep the government open? Is there anything that can be done or are we still headed for shutdown? No. Well, no, we, 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 we need a speaker. We, we can't bring anything to the House floor. There could be no bills discussed or voted on on the House floor. I mean, the House is essentially inoperable. This rule that you referred to was put in place, you know, after September 11th because people said, well, you know, what if there was a terrorist attack and the Speaker of the House, you know, or a number of members of Congress, you know, were incapacitated or they were killed? How would we proceed? This idea of of when, when you're a Speaker of the House handing somebody a list of several names that they're secret because you don't want terrorists to know who they are. One of those people could be picked and their one job, and that one job would be to oversee the process to elect a new Speaker. That's all he can do. So that's the only power uh, that he has, overseeing that's, how that's to elect a new that, Speaker. Right, right, that's it. And I thought, quite frankly, we would stay in, in um, session all week and talk about who the new Speaker is going to be. And, and the Republicans would meet with their, their conference and nominate somebody and bring it to the floor. They put that off until Tuesday. More likely the vote will be on Wednesday. But right now, I mean, the House of Representatives is inoperable. So this is kind of an uncertain time. Again, you know, we, we thought the catastrophe that we would be faced with would be terrorist attack. 
we never thought the catastrophe would be the Republicans self-destructing right before our very eyes. Two names have come forward from the Republican caucus, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, who both thrown their hat into the ring. Is there any chance of any Democratic support? One of the listener questions who wanted to remain anonymous essentially said, is this one of the times that the Democrats, as you're saying, would be bailing out the Republicans coming together around some moderate candidate that is not going to be swayed to the level that McCarthy was by the very small group of MAGA Republicans in the House? Is Jim Jordan one of those candidates? Is Steve Scalise one of those candidates? Jim Jordan as you know, is is kind of a, a lightning rod, and and Steve Scalise is less so, but every bit as conservative as Jim Jordan. So I, I I guess the question is, is is there some concessions that can be achieved in exchange for votes? I mean, that, that was one of the things we we actually talked about with regards to McCarthy. I mean, like all right, we're we're going to help him out, but his agenda has been so awful. Can we get an agreement to to do immigration reform? Can we get an agreement to not gut WIC? Can we get an agreement to, you know, stop the MAGA culture wars? Whatever. Look, I mean, to just to give them whatever so they can put somebody in place who's going to be a Donald Trump puppet. I mean, let them figure that out. We, we don't have to be a cheap date. Let's see who they come up with. Let's see who they nominate. You know, and then we'll, we'll have to weigh all the equities and make a decision. But again, this is their problem. And, uh, you know, if they want our help, then we have to talk about, can we advance some of the things that we think are important? That's kind of where we are. The continuing civics lesson in response to what went on in the House of Representatives with the removal of Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Congressman Jim McGovern, who joins us each week from McGovern with McGovern. Another thing that I was not aware of is that you don't need to be an elected member of the House of Representatives to be Speaker of the House. So one of the other names or two of the other names that are being bandied about as potential new speakers are former Representative Liz Cheney, who does have some bipartisan appeal, and none other than former president, currently under many indictments, Donald Trump. That is a possibility, albeit probably a remote possibility, that somebody from outside the House could be the Speaker yeah. of the House? Yeah, that is, that is you are accurate uh, in your <laughs> description of the situation. Yeah, I think Trump has already tweeted that he's not interested in uh, becoming Speaker. That's a good thing. And Liz Cheney probably could get Democratic votes, but I'm not sure how many Republican votes she could get. Strangely. She's my friend, and, and I admire her courage and her commitment to uh, the Constitution. But uh, yeah, that's a possibility. But here's the deal. I mean, they need to come together and figure out who they want to get behind. If I were betting, I would bet that it's Steve Scalise. He's been around for a while. He seems to have more support in the Republican conference than Jim Jordan. Whoever they nominate, the question is whether all the Republicans will vote to support that person. And what will they have to promise the Freedom Caucus? What will they have to give away in order to get those eight votes? Would, and, so and, then and, wouldn't it make sense if you feel like it's a reasonable enough candidate that some Democrats would vote for them just so the government would function normally instead of being held hostage, both parties and then the whole country to these eight votes? But one would, would assume that in exchange for supporting somebody who you think is bad for the country in terms of their policies, that you're getting something that would actually be good for the country. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I think the more we talk about Democrats helping Republicans out to become Speaker, whatever candidate that might be, it would probably be disadvantaged by that kind of talk. 
I mean, that, that's I think, probably one of the reasons why Kevin McCarthy never made any overtures is because he thought it would be used against him. It would hurt him amongst Republicans. So we, we, we have to have a Republican candidate who is willing to be reasonable and willing to want to work with us. Why, why would you vote for somebody who doesn't want to work with you? Why would you vote for somebody who basically shuts you out of every negotiation, who doesn't value any of your input on any of the, any bills that comes before the House? Like, what is the benefit to that other than giving somebody the opportunity to advance legislation that, quite frankly, is harmful to our country? I mean, we, we, we talk all the time on your show about the importance of protecting abortion rights, the importance of making sure that you know, we do more to help feed the hungry or, or that we have a more rational foreign policy. To the extent that those things are being damaged and those issues are moving backwards, it's because of what is happening in the House of Representatives. So you know, this is not just about how it looks. This is about real issues. My hope is that they'll get their act together or they'll want to work with us. If they want to work with us, then we're willing to work with them. But to, to not even reach out and say, hey, we want, to, we want to approach things a little bit differently. How do we get some democratic support? What's the point? Uh, because then next week we'll be on, on your show saying, yeah, the new Speaker of the House came in and you know what they did is they put in a, a national abortion ban. Well, I, I don't want to be complicit in that. But the, the bottom line is Democrats are not to blame for Kevin McCarthy not being Speaker. Uh, he's to blame. You know, this is their fight. This is their internal civil war. You know, and they need to get their act together. They're not a party who's interested in governing. Uh, they, they, they like to be in the minority where they can just throw bombs and, and give fiery speeches. We've seen what that means. We, we need to move beyond where we've been. And let's see whether there are enough adults in the Republican conference to be able to do that next week. I, I hope and pray that, that that's the case. Hear me out. Taylor Swift, Speaker of the House. Who's going to disagree with that? You don't need to be an elected you know House member. Everybody loves her. Kind of country girl. So she's got those almost Republican-esque values, but come a long way in her progression politically. So the Democrats will probably like her too. You know, uh, she's certainly better than we would have had. So we have to, uh, you know, uh, I'm open to all suggestions. (laughs) U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, who mercifully will be back in the district after a crazy week in Congress. I will also say that the March for the Food Bank that we're both a part of, uh, which is happening on Thanksgiving week, November 20th and 21st, signups if you would like to join us, participate in the march, and uh, fundraise for the Food Bank will be open as of this weekend, foodbankwma.org. Hopefully that'll be a way for you to decompress from all of the madness of this particular session of Congress, Congressman. All the stuff that's happening here certainly makes me look forward to walking 47 miles (laughs) Hopefully not in the rain or cold. But anyway, I, I hope people. I hope people will sign up. I hope people will join us. It's great. It's a great cause, and it's a lot of fun. Anyway, all the best. Thank you, as always, Congressman. Hey, now we got <laughs> Later in the show, we'll look at the series highlighting transgender voices and filmmakers at Amherst Cinemas. But next, we'll head to Holyoke to find out about the only community college in all of Massachusetts with the Latinx Studies Program. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. 
We're in the Frost Building on the beautiful campus of Holyoke Community College, and we were brainstorming about what we might want to do on the Fabulous 413 for Hispanic Heritage Month. And we are rich with lots of institutions of higher learning here in the four counties of Western Mass. But Khalees, you had a great idea. I said, let's go to the community colleges because they're more connected with our actual community and the ways that they enrich them is really interesting. So let's look there first. So we reached out to Holyoke Community College and our friend Chris Yurko said, you got to talk to the head of the Latinx Studies program here at Holyoke Community College. What's your name? My name is Raul Gutierrez, and I'm a professor of Latinx Studies in Spanish. My name is Mishi Serrano, and I'm a current student of the Latinx Studies program. My name is Alana Brunt, and I'm also a current student of the Latinx Studies program. First of all, there's a lot of buzzwords that people hear. Hispanic Heritage Month. Some people think, mm, I don't know if that's the right word to use. Latinx, Latine, Latino, Latina. As a professor in this department, tell us your take on the nuances of those particular words. This is what I teach in the classes when we talk about the differences between self-identifying, so it's a self-identifying terms. The new term that's come up and it was uh, student-led is Latinx, or, and then we have Latine as a result because of the Spanish language. In regards to Hispanic, Hispanic was originally a census term, but it, it's connected to Spain. So it's always been connected to the colonizer, if you want to call it that. And Latino came as a movement from community organizations in the Southwest. And as a result, students started noticing that uh, Latino was not inclusive. So when we were designing the program and the curriculum for Latinx studies, we were thinking, what is the term that is inclusive to everyone? LGBTQ plus, and we decided to go with Latinx. And that's kind of like the term that most academics are kind of buying into now. So we kind of like wanted to be with the trendy folks as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not trendy if it means that it's universally understood. Yeah. It's empathy. When yeah. Bud Light starts making bottles about it, then it's trendy. You gotta, yes. Yeah, I got to question it. I would change the name of the, of the program. <laughs> As a result, when we designed it, we were, we were in discussion with the five colleges. At the same time, Amherst College was coming with Latin American and Latinx Studies de Department and major there. Uh, they did it a year before us. They did it in 2016. We mm -hmm. did it in 2017. Mm -hmm. But we were able to like create the program through an NEH grant and have folks from the five colleges do workshops with faculty here and kind of like diversify their curriculum. And we said, why don't we create this? And this is now was not my idea. It was mostly Monica Torregrosa's idea which is my partner in crime, the other professor that teaches Spanish here. I think that it's self-identification. I don't tell my students to identify as Latinx or Latino or Hispanic. I say, like, this is up to you to decide what are the problems with all of them, including Latinx has problems, because we have a difficulty including Afro-Latinidad and Latinidad in, in general. And it has become kind of like, how do you, like, identify? And most of my students are Afro-Caribbean. So it, can, it becomes kind of like this kind of questioning of, like, is, does this include me? Do I decide to keep it or not? How has the program changed over the past six years? When we started originally, we were having a difficulty attracting students because when you tell a student in a community college or in a regular four-year college, what is Latinx studies? That's the first question. What can I do with it? What type of job am I going to end up with? And so it always kind of like the buy-in was hard. Then we started creating connections with other departments. So we are required by Foundations of Health, which is kind of like the folks that are going into nursing, are required to take intro to Latinx studies because of knowledge of diversity course. And as a result, we have this kind of like understanding because we anchor it within the local community, kind of like understanding your local community. Now it's, uh, the program is growing. We have more students. I think COVID did a number on everyone, including our program. So we're kind of like revving back. Now we're offering 
enter to Latinx studies at the high school, which is a dual enrollment course at Holyoke High. We're offering uh, Latinx history and Gateway to College, which is an alternative high school that's located here at HCC. And we're having like co-taught courses with Amherst College and UMass Amherst to create kind of like pathways and create like, okay, you come to HCC, then you can go to Amherst or you can go like to UMass. But uh, I think uh, we're growing right now because HCC is 31% Latino. Uh, as a student population, we can only have room for growth. How important is Spanish language acquisition to Latinx studies? This is a, a difficult question. Depends who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was originally hired as a Spanish professor. My training is in Latinx and Latin American literature. When I came to HCC, I was teaching mostly Spanish courses. And because we're housed, and this is more common in the Northeast for some reason. For example, when you think about certain programs like Manjolioc, they have Latinx studies or Latino studies and Latin American studies within the Spanish department. Mm -hmm. When you go to the Southwest or the West Coast, that does not happen. Because I'm housed in, in the language department as well, we decided as a team that requiring Spanish was good for the students to have it, even if you're Anglo and you don't speak or you don't speak Spanish, you can take 101 and 102. Mm -hmm. So two courses are required for Spanish and the program. But personally, I think it's important, but it's not necessary. I don't teach Latinx studies in Spanish because Latinx studies is focusing on the populations in the U.S. It's important, but not essential because there's a lot of Latinos that do not speak Spanish. Mishi, tell us some of the classes that you're taking this year at Holyoke Community College in the Latinx studies program. So actually this semester, I'm actually taking Spanish for Heritage Speakers. So Can you just, explain what that is? Yeah, it's just a native course taught by the one and only Raul Gutierrez. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's a class that allows us to use our native language and proficiency and get more comfortable speaking Spanish. The intro to Latinx studies, we began there. And then we went to history of Puerto Rico where we actually got to go to Puerto Rico. What? So it's been a really 360 kind of experience in terms of combining education and hands-on experience for mm -hmm. me. And then going back to my native land was also really important because I'm Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. Being able to connect those dots and see representation inside of my classroom was super, super important, which is why I personally think that I am winning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also think you're winning. <laughs> Do you live here in Holyoke? Um, so I currently live in Westfield, but I'm a native from Holyoke. I just uh, moved away. Uh, the, you know, rent is expansive. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Alana? Tell us some of the classes that you're taking through the Latinx studies program here at Holyoke Community College. I've taken a lot of different courses in the Latinx studies program here. Um, my favorite has had to have been probably Latinx literature. I took that last semester with Raul. My favorite part was probably the stories set in like the 40s and the 50s in New York because that's a specifically Puerto Rican culture that I saw that I've never seen before or since that I thought was superbly interesting. Is that the background that you're from as well? Or? No, actually, my mom was Cuban, moved up here in the late 60s. So I don't really have that sort of community as much as the Puerto Rican folks up here, but I've been embraced and adopted symbolically by that community. So I'm very, very grateful to have it right now, especially because my mom has recently passed away. So having a bunch of folks in this program specifically who are here to care about you and help you through and show you like the different parts of your culture that you never thought were there is wonderful and probably my favorite part. I was in a colloquium, an honors colloquium last semester and I did a project on um, Cuba and my mom was able to come and not only did she come, she answered questions, which I did not ask her to do, but she <laughs> sat down and did that. It was lovely to meet yes, your mom. And, like, and she literally would tell her like, I love Raul and we met for like two hours. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it was uh, the knowledge that she brought because it's 
it's community knowledge. Mm -hmm. I see my students up to a certain extent as family members or like people that are my family even though they're not because I want them to be successful. I want them to kind of like move on forward. What was initially appealing about the Latinx studies program that made you want to focus on it? Um, for me in particular, I want to own a community center and I'm a native here in Holyoke. So I figured that the best way to kind of get started with my associate's degree would to be go back to my roots and kind of analyze how can I best serve the people around me, which is my population of folks. So being able to be learn a part of the Latinx Studies program gave me an opportunity to spread more and learn more right before I can be able to provide more based on the community's needs. So what brought me into this program and what was like why I decided to um, become a Latinx Studies major is that I never found anything that really fit. I've always wanted to help people and be helpful to my community and the people around me. And I never found something that really stuck until I found out about the Latinx Studies program. And once I started doing the classes and reading the literature, I was like, wow, this is a really good fit. And Raul is pretty good at identifying <laughs> students and bothering them and saying like, you should take my class or you should take my class. <laughs> that was Raul himself. Like, that kind of happened with Alana. Alana oh. took a class with me and I said, you should be a Latinx Studies major. And she said, why? I was like, because you're talented, why not? And then we moved on from there. Mishi wants to work towards a community center and I'm not trying to put any pressure on you, but do you have any dreams and aspirations of what's gonna be post-HCC? I actually wanna become a professor. My serious life goal and like my 20-year plan is eventually I wanna come back here as a professor um, in the Latinx Studies program. Eventually, like my pipe dream here is to become the president of Polio Community College. Um, you just missed the opportunity, Christina Royale just left. I know. That's my goal. Eventually I wanna get my, I wanna work through like my PhD and work with the community and work with the people that I've known my like whole sort of adult life has been spent here and I want to use that to come back here and make it better for the folks that come after me. Look at Professor Raul. You were the one who encouraged her to get in this program and now look at her dreams and aspirations. <laughs> That's the whole goal. All students have different paths and we have been lucky to get really good students that are thriving in the four-year schools now. My goal is for whatever they want to do just for them to find something that they're passionate about. I say like if you're passionate about your work and this is quoting on Gloria Saldua, which is a Chicano writer from the Southwest, from Texas. And she said, do work that matters. Trabajo que vale la pena. Do work that is worth the suffering that is life. <laughs> that is life. Yeah. Coming up, more with Professor Raul Gutierrez and Latinx Studies majors Mishi Seran and Alana Brunt at HCC's Latinx Studies program. And later, a chat at Amherst Cinema about centering trans stories in their transformed film series. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. I think a question that we hear a lot, people are like, why the heck does Hispanic Heritage Month start in the middle of one month and go to the middle of the other month? Why isn't it one whole month? Professor Raul Gutierrez, can you answer that question? It, it started in the 1970s, so once again, it, it was created as a celebration of Latino culture in the States, but it, it became kind of like this institutionalized celebration of Hispanic cultures and it kind of like grew and grew and then marketing became a part of it as well, which is both a blessing and a problem as well. Black pro History Month sees you and your problem. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, for me, the problem is like it's just one month and then like, OK, we move on to the next, whomever's next. So you have all these representation and once it becomes systematized and it becomes kind of like co-opted, it's troubling. But that's just me. But for those who don't know, why does it start in the middle of one month and go to the middle of the next? Most of Latin American nations became independent in September. 
uh, September 16 is Mexico, September 18 is Chile, and then you have September 21st, other Central American nations and South American nations. So you have the independence of these, all these nations are kind of like grouped together between September and October. But they don't start at early September, they start mid-September. Two months is fine with me. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, it's, but it's really it's, like two halves of months. months. Yeah. It's 12 yeah. months. I mean, like they do the same thing every Afri well, like African Hi African History Month is yeah, but, I but have it's a dream. Always, I have a dream and never letter from a Montgomery jail. I agree. Right, right. Like, I agree. It's, and it's never like any or, of Medgar Evers' work. It's never any of like, especially late era, post-pilgrimage Malcolm X. Like they pick, we say they, and I don't mean yeah. like, like the, the greater society picks <laughs> and chooses who they'd like to hold up as the hallmark. And then they hold that hallmark up for a month because their arms get tired. The rest of us gotta carry them for the rest of the year. I agree. When they asked us to do the Day of the Dead thing, I was really happy, but I was saying like, there's not a lot of Mexicans in this community. Mm. So I'm, I'm happy because I'm Mexican, but like, when you think about Hispanic Heritage Month, especially like in the nationwide, it becomes Mexican. Yeah. Mexican yeah. Heritage Month because most of the stuff that we do, the large majority of Latinx folks in the U.S. are Mexican, except in this area. <laughs> but, it, but it becomes, once again, how do we like manage to include the few Mexicans that live here, but also understand that the majority is Puerto Rican. And I think like the murals are a perfect representation of how you center the majority of the people that we're serving which is people from the Caribbean. Tell us a little bit about the mural and the artist. Uh, the artist, her name is Bessie Casañas, and she's a, she lives in Philadelphia, but she's Puerto Rican. Um, the mural that you see outside, which is an Afro-Caribbean woman dancing bomba, which is a typical dance or a traditional dance from Puerto Rico. It's an actual classroom. She's teaching folks how to dance bomba, and you can see that. So she specifically decided to connect it to our, we're a teaching institution, so kind of have that classroom aspect of it. Is the bomba teacher a real person from yeah. the area? It's actually yeah. like- Because we had a bomba teacher on, on the show last, last week, week, so that would have been crazy <laughs> if she was the person. Brenda Lee? We had Brenda Lee. Yeah. She's related to her. Ah, okay, like, wow. So that's Tata Cepeda. Oh, wow. And she's from Puerto Rico, but, wow. uh, but she is related to Prendali Cepeda. So the Cepeda family, which has helped yeah. to preserve Bomba as a, an institution, now preserved as a mural at HCC. Yeah, the one that is in El Centro, which is a smaller one that's inside, has Latin American figures and Latino figures that are, so they have Dolores Huerta, they have Roberto Clemente, and all these Latinx figures or Latin American figures that were like social movement. It's beautiful. And we have a Bejigante mask and El Centro, which is also kind of representative of the population we serve, which is mostly Puerto Rican. How has it been developing programs like tangentially with other departments at HCC? We closely collaborated with support system, uh, programs such as Pathways, which is um, select the schools for uh, students that want to go to select the schools such as Amherst, Mount Holyoke, and those places. And also we work very closely with El Centro, which is the, the, the folks that were able to get the, the murals up and kind of like attracting students that are mostly Latinx to take these courses. And we work with TRIO and all these other programs that are like attracting students to us because the whole, if we build it, they will come is not an actual true thing uh. because uh, it's kind of like attracting the students. And also we're working directly with, not only with departments here at HCC, but with organizations in Holyoke, such as Palante. We work directly with Wisteria Curse, the Holyoke Public Library, Ethnic Studies at Holyoke High. So all of these programs to kind of create pipelines, because the students, if they decide to come to HCC, they know that they have a space. They don't have to do my major, but they can take tech classes with me and find people that might look like them or think like them or have cultural backgrounds like them, which is very important.
for students that are BIPOC. We're at HCC, Holyoke Community College, with the head of the Latinx Studies Program, Professor Raul Gutierrez, as well as two of the students, Mishi and Alana. There's a lot of festivities about Hispanic Heritage Month that'll be happening here, including a ribbon cutting that we're going to see of these murals that are coming, and I see like a food truck or something going on out there right now, I'm hoping it's part of the festivities. Tell us about what's going to be happening that maybe people in the public will be able to see for the festivities of Hispanic Heritage Month here. On October 17th, we're going to have a film screened here in collaboration with the five colleges called Nos Tenemos. We are still here, uh, which is a documentary made by people that are doing social movements in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And it's about the young people kind of like trying to change the, the island itself. And we have a ton of other events we're planning to do Dia de los Muertos and November 2nd and have like an ofrenda and have like an offering again because we started that last year and it was pretty successful we're going to try to do that again nice. in collaboration with el centro and there's other events that are in the community as well that we're collaborating with michi and alana are there things that you'd like to see as part of the program or that you're working with raul to bring to the program for the future more students <laughs> more students <laughs> about how many students are there now there's That's a good question for you <laughs> there's, there's, there's 12 majors right now uh-huh which is pretty good as a community organizer, like I deal with students who are younger than me, and I work in the alternative school too here on campus. And a lot of the times it's like making those connections for them to understand that they could leverage themselves and find home in education that is not solely leaving you to money. Because I feel like a lot of times we alienate ourselves in terms of like nursing, business school, right. that's it. Or like we go into um, kind of like something that's more like technical and hands-on. And it's not that those are places that we aren't needed or necessities in, but kind of like creating that historical connection to education, especially while getting your associates at a community college at the rate that we are doing it. So I feel like kind of like if there's one thing I could bring in, it's definitely in hoping for is more students who understand that there's so much possibility in something that is still so very new. And to piggyback off what you were saying, Mishi, technical schools are awesome, business majors are awesome, nursing's awesome, but that is not what you have to do. Making money is important, but it is not the only thing that your life needs to be towards. There are other things. The humanities, um, which I would kind of like put us under that umbrella, is important because if you lose the humanities, you lose your humanity. You are not a dollar sign. Your worth does not sit in how much money you can make with your career. Your worth is in multitudes and multiple facets. You are a disco ball and your light <laughs> fractulates yes. and goes in a million different directions. And I think that that is important. I want to be a disco ball. Yeah. Up next, we'll look at the series highlighting trans voices at filmmakers at Amherst Cinema. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. I apologize in advance because we wish we could have covered this from the beginning of this four-part series, but we didn't get word of it until day one of night one of Transformed, which is a four-part series amplifying stories, trans stories, representation, and filmmakers across these four Tuesdays at Amherst Cinema, where we are right now in the lobby. We got an email that was like, tonight the Matrix as part one of Transformed focusing on trans stories, and we were bummed we couldn't go. Yes, we were very bummed we couldn't go. But then some people may hear, <laughs> wait a minute, focusing trans stories, the Matrix. The I Matrix is a trans metaphor. I oh, come on. It's not, no, it's not, come on. I think the vast majority of people who have ever seen the Matrix, especially when it came out, had absolutely no idea Fair that enough. it was a trans metaphor. It is a high-tech sci-fi thriller that now internet trolls like to use 
interviews, the red pill, blue pill, about conspiracy theories. Take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. But it is, and has always been, a trans metaphor. What's your name? Elliot Montague. Um, I'm an assistant professor of film production at Mount Holyoke College, and I'm a filmmaker. I'm Jen Malkowski, and I'm an associate professor of film and media studies at Smith College. You also teach a, a course on video games. And, I do. Yeah. I do teach on video games. It's the coolest job in the world. We <laughs> have our own video game studies lab at Smith. It's great. We're having you back yes. about that soon. But for those who maybe this is the first time they've ever heard the fact that The Matrix is a trans metaphor and not just cool Keanu Reeves movie. I know Kung Fu. Show me. You can buy a whole shirt about it. Tell us why the Matrix is a trans metaphor, Professor Jen. <laughs> you know, um, so my, I wish Kale Keegan were here who introduced the film, but um, I just want to give uh, him a shout out as saying, you know, it's really kind of scholars in part who have dug back into these films, especially in light of the Wachowskis' transition and said, Because it was, when the movie came out, it was directed by the Wachowski brothers, who, yes. both of whom now are Wachowski sisters. Correct. Although I, I recently learned that the remastered version still lists the Wachowski brothers in the title card, which I think is a strange choice. But yeah, it was really, um, you know, people like Kill Keegan doing analysis of the film that brought to life some of those trans themes. Um, and he wrote a whole book recontextualizing uh, the Wachowskis' work in, through kind of a trans lens um, and introduced the film here when it was here at Emmer Cinema. For people who've seen The Matrix, what are the things that stand out to you about like, aha, this was always hiding in plain sight? I mean, I think I can at least offer that, you know, Neo as a character is someone who's kind of awakening to a new realization about himself, about his role in the world, about the nature of the world and the kind of nature of his transition in the film speaks to some of those themes, especially the kind of new awareness, the new physical empowerment in some way that he's going through. I recently watched the Wachowski's first movie, Bound, and that definitely seems like the whole thing is a trans allegory. And you were saying one of the best lesbian movies of the 90s. Yes, I will endorse Bound, <laughs> absolutely, as one of the best lesbian movies of the 90s. And I think it's so clear now, kind of seeing how they were able to make that film. If you were, uh, I, I was watching it in the 90s thinking like, how did the guys who made The Matrix, how did they get lesbian sexuality and, and kind of intrigue so right? in this very cool neo-noir film. A lot of the Wachowski's other films also have these themes in two. I was thinking of Equilibrium, where you've got a whole society where you're not allowed to feel, and the people that do feel are harshly punished so, uh, to the point of like death. Like Some of the themes that come up in there, too, also resonate within queer community. This has been a thread running through their work for a really long period of time. And sadly, you missed the Wachowski portion of Transformed, the four-part series here at Amherst Cinema, but you've got two opportunities left, two Tuesdays coming up. The next Tuesday is a series of shorts, Transformed Shorts program, and Professor Elliot, you'll be leading that conversation. Tell us about that shorts program. I do know two of the shorts that are playing, because I think some of them are to be determined. We have Happy Birthday, Marsha by Tourmaline and Sasha Wurzel, and then my short film um, from a few years ago, Light in a Path Follow. And I'm going to be presenting that with Vic Quesada, who is an assistant professor of, I see some heads nodding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Vic and I met in LA years ago and then both made our way out here. Now we're both 
in the consortium teaching art and film, and uh, they were the lead in the film. Uh, we shot it about five years ago in West Cummington. Oh, wow. um, we presented it at Mount Holyoke for Trans Day Visibility a few years ago, and this will sort of be the first local premiere that's more public. So I'm really excited that we're going to be presenting it to like a wider audience here. Tell us about the film. It's part of a trilogy which I'm currently still working on. It's a narrative short that follows Joaquin, who is um, a trans mask pregnant person. It takes place in the 90s. Speaking of the 90s, I guess we're always <laughs> sort of going back to... <laughs> I do love the 90s. <laughs> they're pregnant and they encounter this spirit in the woods and then um, they're sort of haunted and guided by this spirit and then uh, they go into labor early and they have a baby on their own, but then this spirit sort of takes the form of a midwife ghost and helps deliver the baby. So a lot of it's about trans bodies and pregnant bodies and the intersections of that and bodies in transitions being portals for other times and places and transcestors, ancestors. The next film I'm working on, it's it's called The Birthing Trilogy and this one is about the, the person who played the midwife spirit, actually a very dear friend of mine, we went to Hampshire. He passed away two years ago, um, and so it was a miracle he was able to work on the film. And then I was pregnant at the time that he passed, and so the film sort of speaks as this, not a premonition, but it was very close to home. Wow. And it was sort of like, okay, now um, this is happening in reality, and, and just thinking about reincarnation and or transference of spirit, and, and his name was Lucia Leandro. It seems so deeply personal. What came first, the idea for the film or your own personal journey? That's a good question. I think the I wanted to make a film about trans pregnancy and birth that, well, just any sort of birth or pregnancy that wasn't someone screaming in a hospital room, or I wanted to sort of demedicalize it. I watched a lot of films with birthing, and one that was interesting actually that stood out to me was a quiet place uh, where she's giving oh, yeah. birth by herself in the bathtub and she's alone and I, I did watch quite a few movies where people were giving birth alone and how that's such a private and intimate experience but then it's medicalized and not private and the way that people's bodies just get invaded even though it's such a to me like a very spiritual experience. That's Professor Elliot Montague from Mount Holyoke College, who's created this movie that'll be in part three of this four-part series at Amherst Cinema, Transformed, focusing and centering trans stories. I love that it was created by you, now a local professor, whose family name looms large in the 413. <laughs> Montague, the town that I live you in. Might live in there. Yeah, and that it was filmed in, in, West, uh, in West Cummington. Say it's such a beautiful film. Um, I've had the opportunity to see it a number of times, and just atmospherically, aesthetically, thematically, really shouldn't miss this one. It's really great. And its local premiere to at least the general public is going to be this coming yeah. Tuesday. The last opportunity that you'll have in this particular incarnation of this series will be the following Tuesday, and it's Kokomo City, which has anyone here seen? None of us have seen it. We're all excited to see it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been reading interviews with the director, though, Dee Smith, who has a really interesting story, was a producer in the music industry, decided to transition, and as she transitioned, she describes basically losing all employment, losing professional connections, feeling rejected in that space, experiencing homelessness and insecurity financially, and thinking about the black trans sex worker community 
community and if that's where she was going to end up mm-hmm. she started reaching out and making this film about black women uh, trans women who were sex workers in Atlanta and in New York City and it's just from what I've heard such a unique and and really surprisingly light take on the subject right one thing um Dee has said in interviews is not wanting to, even though there is tremendous violence against um, trans sex workers of color, not wanting to have that be the only portrayal of the women in this line of work. Right. Yeah, because there's always, uh, every issue is multifaceted, and it's really easy, I think, to focus on the things that are the most gut-wrenching, painful, and powerful without seeing the breadth and depth of the human experience. I'm curious, uh, Professor Elliot, how your film has been received uh, amidst the trans communities that have have seen this, well, as soon as we finished it, COVID happened. So the film actually had a really vibrant virtual life, and it played in I think over thirty festivals worldwide, and it got into f- film festivals that were trans specific, LGBTQ specific, and then just mainstream festivals. I wasn't able to really go to any of the screenings because right. they were mostly virtual. Yeah. It got into half of a dozen Latinx film festivals. I think that was really important as well. It got a lot of recognition. The main character is Latinx, and um, the Quesada is Latinx. And we were talking about just the importance of portraying a trans person of color who's pregnant it's someone who can produce life and reproduce life mm-hmm. where it's, the story isn't ending in tragic loss or death and so that was really important to us especially if a, a story that would that took place you know 30 years ago and the crew was mostly lgbtq and that was really important to me to kind of create a film set where and I really try to model this to my students where, you know, there, there is this hierarchy that you can't get away from. There's the director. That's a template for communication, um, but not for power. I brought in a number of Amherst and Hampshire students actually to work on the film. It was really a reflection of that, that sort of community that we wanted to build with the piece. I was thinking what you said about the setting of the film in the 1990s as well. And then, or a little bit later than then, there was so much sensationalized news coverage of the pregnant trans man, right? Right. That's kind of around that time. Yes. It's, It's really amazing to kind of go back to that period and set a very quiet, unsensationalized story about that experience. I'm so glad you brought that up because it was, uh, I remember specifically responding to Thomas Beatty in 2006 or with some work that I was doing in grad school and thinking about, it does feel so sensationalized. I remember this particular interview that he did with Oprah and is is any news good? <laughs> is any coverage? <laughs> I was like, mm, this feels a little, but it was also so new at the time and I was not thinking of having children but it just felt like it could be misinterpreted and especially now with how our our reproductive rights are just totally on the chopping block for however you identify with stories that sort of show the experience of pregnancy and I think that it's timely that now a few years after the film came out this is now happening in our world and it's terrifying but I think it just calls for even more stories like this to be made. We're in the lobby of Amherst Cinema where there are two parts left of a four-part series transformed focusing the storytelling about trans folks and their stories starting out with The Matrix 
lyrics to these locally created and produced films. The executive director of Amherst Cinema joins us, Yasmin Chin Eisenhower. Why is this something that was important for Amherst Cinema to put out there? While we are in the midst of the four-part series, the two parts of the series that have already occurred are actually available online so that people who want to come and join the rest of the series are also able to catch up, kind oh, of like cool. binging, right? Which means so, that we can all go back and watch The Matrix and see all of the things that we <laughs> missed yes. because it's been a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and in fact, the lecture that we had prior to The Matrix is also fully online and available oh, as well. That's so, that, so, so that's important to say because I believe that, for one, at Amherst Cinema, trans community is part of our community. As Elliot had mentioned, right, a lot of these stories, they're specific to various communities, but they're also part of the human experience. And part of the work that we do is to connect communities to stories that will both reflect their experiences and offer an opportunity for others to, to learn more, participate, engage and find the intersections between their own identities and what they're seeing on film. I'm so delighted that we have it here. On a kind of more hyper-local level, this was an issue that was bumping to the fore in terms of our local Amherst community, as well as a larger, wider political stage. Mm. And so here at the cinema, we, we have a cinema and we have the ability to curate things that are meaningful and in meaningful ways. And as you experience these four series, each of these are in conversation with one another. So if you see The Matrix and you know that was by the Wachowski sisters, then you'll also then see them in disclosure featured as a subject of that film. And then you lean into our shorts program, which then shows a wider variety leading to Kokomo City. So I'm so excited and delighted that I have partners in this work. And thank you for taking the time to meet with us. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to talk to them about film all day. It's really nice. <laughs> You're just nodding your head. <laughs> Thanks again to Elliot Montague, Assistant <laughs> Professor of Film Production at Mount Holyoke, Jen Malkowski, Assistant Professor of Film and Media Studies at Smith, and Amherst Cinema's Executive Director there, Yasmin Chin Eisenhower. And yes, it is fun to talk to them about film. And hopefully all later we'll be able to talk to them about video games too. Yes, yes. Because as you may have heard in that segment, Jen, Professor Jen, has a video game lab at Smith College. Yes, and I actually have a game studies, uh, game theory connection there too mm. that I didn't think about until after. Friday on the Fabulous 413 Double Live Music Friday, we'll hear the riotous sounds of Columbia's La Perla before they take stage in East Hampton. And then genre-bending music fusion of Priya Darshini, who'll be at the Academy of Music on Saturday. Plus a wine Thunderdome flipped on its head when State Street pairs wines with the canapé recipe that I had a dream about. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Bad Bunny, Camilla Cabello, and Don Davis for the Matrix soundtrack. Our director is Tony, childcare bound done. Our engineers are Betsy, everyone is excited about 7 Inches, Lankto, Kara, I probably had too much candy, Foster, but Bart is also here, Rankin, and Punk, Rude Boy, Sharp Cheddar, Dubay. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. Unless you get lost in the Matrix. 